Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, author Stephen Walt details the problems of U.S. primacy on the planet. Joseph Bishop Henchman of the Tax Foundation discusses the Constitution and sales tax. Cato's Clark Neely describes how courts should protect constitutional rights. And Representative Adam Smith provides some of the context surrounding military base realignment and closures. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. History does not stand still, and uh, the United States, with regard to its interactions with uh, countries around the world, is long and checkered and embarrassing and triumphant and a lot of different things. And, and of course, everything leads to the next thing uh, with respect to foreign policy, uh, and a lot has changed very recently. So uh, we're talking with Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, who has authored a new book on behalf of Cato's libertarianism.org project, Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. Chris, you're solo here on the Cato Audio Roundtable. I am. So uh, to begin here, what are the most important elements to understand about uh, foreign policy as understood by the founders and what the what they viewed at that at, the, at those in those early years as the proper role of this new country uh, in the world right so thanks for having me Caleb it's been a great project to work on with um, the folks at libertarianism and um, you know, it's given me an opportunity I'm a historian by training and it's given me an opportunity to sort of talk about U.S. history and then relate it to the present day. And if you go back and you look at how the founders th thought about foreign policy, what they wrote, um, they were quite anxious that wars or the the danger that the United States would become involved in wars would grow the power of the state. Um, uh, even folks like George Washington, um, a military man himself, um, was quite adamant that um, overgrown military establishments, as he called them in his farewell address, uh, would be a threat to liberty. You quote uh, James Madison here in the uh, early chapter. Uh, he's at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. He say he wrote or said, "The means of defense against foreign danger have." been always the instruments of tyranny at home. Among the Romans, it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended. Throughout all Europe, the armies kept under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. Right. So uh, again, the founders' views on standing armies and on military establishments were, were, um, were clear. Um, and they were informed by history, not just recent history, but ancient history. And so I think what's striking to me about the Constitution in particular is it did create a stronger uh, federal government than the Articles of Confederation. And part of the reason for that was concern about the ability of the, of the individual states as effectively sovereign states to defend themselves against one, one another and foreign threats. Um, and so the Constitution did create a stronger federal government with the ability to, um, through union, um, better defend against foreign threats. And yet, despite that, the Constitution also includes some very clear limits on the ability of the federal government to mobilize resources for war. Um, it does it by, for example, limiting appropriations for the army um, and requiring Congress to come back to the people repeatedly to fund the army, which effectively prohibits uh, you know, a standing army um, itself. They did allow for the the, and so the, the, re, the reference, of course, is to raising an army. They did allow for a navy to be maintained, but they saw the navy as much less of a threat to liberty in the same way that standing armies were. They also, of course, wanted the Congress to have to um, vote on matters of war and peace, that the, the power to go to war was vested with the Congress, not with the executive branch. 
Um, and they fully expected uh, that you know, if if it were necessary for the United States to mobilize to to repel um, uh, foreign threats, uh, then the the Congress would vote for it and reflect the will of the people of a of a willingness to to undertake this and raise the funds necessary to prosecute the war to a successful end. Uh, the military, of course, is very different today than uh, at the times when when muskets were distributed. Uh, and purchased and was a, a craftsman's product, yes, the, yes. the musket. Mm -hmm. um, but we live in a world where we do have a standing army. Yes. Uh, war powers have been viewed as by many people as almost inherently executive in a, in a very fundamental, powerful yes. way. Yes. Um, you you re referred uh, again to Madison, and he said there is no greater wisdom than uh, the delegation of war powers to uh, the uh, congression or the or should say the legislative branch. branch. Yeah. Um, but it, it's he 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 actually called it the most important clause of the of the document. So Madison specifically was he concerned that an uh, overweening executive would seek out these powers and seek to aggrandize these powers or was he concerned that the legislature would abdicate because that seems to be where we are now it's yes. like there, there's an extent to which because uh, right, I remember Barack Obama saying, I have the power to do this, but I'm going to be kind and right, ask right. Congress to approve. <laughs> right. Uh, when we're recording this, recent, recent, just recently, Congress did sort of exercise its uh, its authority in a very sort of odd way, or, or I shouldn't say odd way, it is odd, but the, the reporting at the time said that, that it was a unique uh, and rare act of defiance on the part of Congress to affirm it. <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. It's absurd to affirm its constitutional obligation. This is an act of defiance. Uh, that's how far we've come. Um, uh, I think that Madison believed that the branches would balance against one another and that they would be jealous of their powers and prerogatives. And I think that hasn't happened and it, is, it happens less and less. Uh, the part that he somewhat anticipated, and you can see this in Federalist 10, but not to the same extent that it's it's happened, um, the parties and, and partisanship uh, have, um, have eroded the three branches and their sense of sort of responsibility and balance um, such that um, it is now quite routine for Republican members to support, support wars started by Republican presidents and, and, and the same thing with Democrats. Uh, but generally, uh, sort of leaving partisanship aside, generally an unwillingness on the part of members of Congress to, to affirm uh, and assert their prerogatives under the Constitution. <laughs> Of course, war is not the only thing that fo in, engages foreign policy. Of course, we here at the Cato Institute like to point out that free trade is one of the most powerful uh, weapons, if you will, yes. on behalf of peace. Yes. Um, but with respect to interventions uh, in other countries, how has the understanding of the role of the United States changed? in our 200 plus years? Well, it's it's changed very dramatically. I think that the key sort of frame of reference that I always go back to is something that the historian Walter McDougall teaches at the University of Pennsylvania, um, sets up as a distinction between the Old and New Testament. Uh, under the Old Testament vision of the United States' role in the world, the United States would set itself up as an example for others and create a system of government uh, that provided uh, benefits uh, to the people uh, th through liberty and to allow them to build you know, prosperous, fulfilling lives um, and that other countries would wish to be like us. Um, uh, you know, we were you know, the city on the hill. We were the new Israel is the way it was described at the time. And I think those ideas held for um, most of the the first uh, hundred plus years of American history. Uh, the second. Uh, act, as it were, is more like the New Testament, where the United States is a crusading uh, spirit. It's not enough to be simply the example to others, but that we would go and promote actively around the world. That was a very 
dramatic departure from um, America's founding traditions. The most famous um, uh, speech of the sort of reflecting this early sentiment is John Quincy Adams' speech on 4th of July, 1821. That's the speech in which he said, the United States goes not abroad in, for, in search of monsters to destroy. Um, and yet by the early uh, 20th century, uh, the United States did, of course, become involved in a number of foreign conflicts and then progressively more so as the 20th century wore on such that now uh, in 2018, the United States is actively engaged in at least, uh, you know, in at least seven different places and arguably the war on terror um, encompasses effectively the entire planet. And so there is a, there is, we are, um, quite literally um, in a constant state of uh, war and, and military intervention. Uh, in your chapter on the world wars and their lessons, you write, alas, the confident predictions that commerce would reduce war to obsolescence seem hopelessly naive when juxtaposed against the human carnage that occurred during the first half of the 20th century. So what was that actually a mistake to believe that uh, commerce would dramatically reduce war? Was it overstated simply? It was overstated. I think that it's it's wrong to accuse uh, folks like, it wasn't just someone like Norman Angel, but also uh, uh, Cobden and Bright who led the Anti-Corn Law League in, the, in, in Great Britain in the, in the mid 19th century who believed that trade would be a vehicle for peace. John Stuart Mill wrote about it as well. Um, obviously, Immanuel Kant. The, these people, uh, argued that war was costly and risky and that the gains to trade could deliver benefits vastly greater than the, the gains that were acquired like you know through most of human history which is you take other people's stuff um, that's that's not the way that it you know human history has evolved thankfully um, and and angel who wrote uh, before the first world war that um that war you know would simply didn't make sense it didn't make sense for countries to believe they could get rich by uh by by conquest um and and he was right in the sense that uh, the war started, but the, those who initiated the war believed it, World War One believed it would end quickly with a decisive victory. It obviously did not. Uh, and I think the lesson of the 20th century is that these massive world wars, great power wars are extraordinarily costly and the benefits are uh, fleeting if, you know, if, if at all. Um, Add to that now uh, the presence of nuclear weapons, which raises the cost of aggression um, um, astronomically, right? That the, the benefits that would accrue to a country that takes on a nuclear armed state um, uh, are seem quite small uh, when confronted with the risk of, of total annihilation. And so, the, you know, I think that there are a number of factors that explain the absence of great power conflict since 1945. That is not to say that wars have ended. They certainly have not. It is not to say that great power conflict is impossible. It is possible. And yet, I think many people understand that the the cost and benefit equ you know equation is is vastly in favor of defense as opposed to offense. So, is it appropriate to think of war uh, as being about resources? Because if we think of trade as you know delivering these tremendous gains and as uh, nuclear weapons being used only as this last resort, because you know if you're there to take stuff. There's not much stuff to take if you in an irradiated hellscape. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, I I think that um, if we perceive that that trade or gain or greed, as uh, Hobbes put it, um, is the primary driver of of warfare, then then trade really does drain away from it. But of course, uh, drain away sort of the appeal of war. But of course, countries also go to war for matters of prestige and honor and glory and those sorts of things. And those are less pronounced also than they were hundreds of years ago, but they still exist. Countries uh, and people still resist, uh, you know, uh, foreigners imposing 
imposing on them their will uh, and and sometimes desire to impose it on others. And so I think you have to allow for the fact that war is caused by things other than than just greed. Between the end of World War II and 9-11, we still had also pretty dramatic shifts in how Americans view foreign policy. Yes. Uh, a, a lot of the Vietnam experience, I think, left a lot of Americans with a general profound distaste for war. Mm -hmm. uh, but since then, war has become less costly in a sense with respect to uh, humans. Right. That is throwing a lot of human beings at a, at a conflict is... Uh, we don't have to do that as much anymore. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I wrote about this last year, sort of comparing the various war memorials uh, of which there are now many uh, on the National Mall. Um, uh, we Americans have, uh, or the United States, I should say, US troops have done the fighting. Americans have mostly watched uh, since 9-11. Uh, you know, war is now into the, the 18th year um, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and the total number of Americans killed in those 18 years is uh, a bit over 7,000. The number of names carved in the Vietnam Memorial in Black Granite is over 58. Thousand, it seems inconceivable today to imagine a, a conflict like Vietnam that is so uh, costly in terms of human lives um, and American lives. Uh, something perhaps as many as three million Vietnamese were killed in the Vietnam War. Um, but the fact that we do not have um, Americans uh, dying in these conflicts uh, nearly on the scale that they did in, in Korea and Vietnam um, uh, does not mean that the, these wars are, are, are short or, or actually they're, they're quite long, right? They're being fought in a way that, as you note, sort of separates most Americans from having to consider these costs. Um, and, um, and so we are on a sort of autopilot as it were, it seems. Since 9-11, the United States has you know, hastily passed uh, authorizations for the use of force, which is that different or the same as a declaration of war? It's not the same as a declaration of war. It's not. Um, we have not had a declaration of war since World War II. All right. So s since then, we've had multiple authorizations of the use of force that were essentially open-ended. Yes. Um, but even those relatively open-ended de uh, declarations, authorizations, have uh, been stretched so far beyond right. the original intention. I mean, right. it's to the point where we're using declarations meant to fight Al-Qaeda, uh, to fight ISIS, an avowed enemy of Al-Qaeda. Correct. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm glad you, you, you framed this. So, of course, the Korean War was, was not fought under the declaration of war. It was, you know, called a police action or, or something along those lines. But imagine uh, under the rubric of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, uh, Lyndon Johnson claiming the right to send U.S. troops into Zimbabwe, for example. There's there's something just utterly absurd about that. And, that, and yet, under the authorization to use military force passed immediately after 9-11 and the subsequent authorization pertaining to uh, war in Iraq in 2002, um, it is not inconceivable that um, U.S. military personnel could be sent to virtually any place on the planet under the guise of one or both of those AUMFs. So moving forward, it seems that, as we mentioned earlier, we have a standing army. The uh, executive has been aggrandized with respect to war powers. Yes. Uh, the the ability for a sitting U.S. president to engage in hostilities around the planet is in some sense, unlimited. Yes. So, how do we get back to uh, what you you would view as an appropriate role for the United States throughout the globe? Right. So, um, this material in the book um, sort of continues on the work that I did ten years ago in the power problem, and sort of lays out a set of criteria that I think that that. Americans, all Americans, but especially especially those Americans who are entrusted uh, with the responsibility to to oversee these things, that is, our elected officials in Congress, um, because the United States is a 
a wealthy country. We are a large country. We are a powerful country. We will have the ability to use force on a moment's notice virtually no matter what we do. I, I don't dispute that. That is going to happen. But precisely because we have that power, it's incumbent upon uh, U.S. officials and, and, and sort of, uh, frankly, all Americans to sort of consider whenever someone proposes that the U.S. military be deployed to a particular place, to ask some very specific questions about what is the mission, uh, how long will it last, how much will it cost, um, what are the prospects for actual victory, um, are the American people sufficiently supportive of this mission that they can sustain it uh, as long as necessary? We just don't ask these questions anymore. We just become involved militarily and then, and then effectively the president dares the Congress to cut off the funds for the troops, which they don't do. Um, so I think um, it, it really is about sort of turning the question of intervention back to why as opposed to why not. Because we can is not a sufficient answer. We always can. Uh, and I think American presidents have, have, have figured this out qu quickly. Um, and even those who from time to time resisted it, including most recently Barack Obama and Donald J. Trump, um, even when they might be inclined to resist it, they are often surrounded by people uh, or, or buffeted by the various cable news networks uh, on all the places where they should be intervening, where U.S. troops could be making a difference, where the United States honor and prestige is sufficiently engaged that requires us to do more. And, and they need a, a set of criteria. We all need a set of criteria to sort of assess um, whether or not that is the appropriate uh, uh, policy because, and I want to I emphasize this, because there are many instruments of American power and influence besides the U.S. military. You know, I served in the military. I'm proud of it. It is, a, it is an outstanding institution and the people who serve in it deserve our respect. And yet, they are only one set of, they, the military, are only one set of tools or instruments of U.S. power. And we have to be more confident in the other things that the United States can and has done um, uh, to, to spread liberty and to, to spread the, the vision of the good life. And that, that other technique, the other methods that we use are precisely those that were favored by the founders, that the United States should create a society that others wish to emulate and that we should, we should be consistent and we should speak to these principles uh, and adhere to these principles. And I think if we did that, um, uh, the world would be, frankly, not merely a safer place, that is fewer wars, but also a freer place. So that is great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, as, a, as an aspiration, yes. I have a lot of uh, high regard for that. Um, but you know, there are incentives built into the structure of our government. Um, there are incentives that are built into how media gets distributed today. The uh, fiscal policy yes. uh, here in Washington, D.C. plays a role. Um, to what extent has debt Yes. The ability for the government to borrow, you know, endlessly more money right. as, as, as we record this, the national debt just hit 22, 22, 22, 22 trillion, trillion yes. dollars. Um, to what extent does debt, you know, we're not throwing a lot of human beings or I should say we're not killing a lot of U.S. soldiers, relatively yes. speaking. Yes. It, it's, it's, it still happens a lot, but it's dramatically smaller numbers. Yes. To what extent is the fact that there is no immediate consequence with respect to the federal budget, with right. respect to taxes, with respect to cutting, having to cut federal programs in order to fund this war? Right. How has that enabled war? It has enabled it um, hugely. Uh, you know, it is it is hard to overstate the um, importance of debt and deficit spending um, to um, prevent. The advocates for for war uh, from spelling out to the American people what 
Americans will be expected to forego or what sacrifices they will be required to make in order to prosecute these wars. And let's be clear, um, even the long and seemingly interminable conflicts under the war on terror have consumed trillions of dollars, but trillions of dollars over a period of time in which the uh, US economy has generated hundreds of trillions, uh, more or less. You know, uh, the total military spending in the United States is somewhere on the order of 3% of GDP and shrinking. So by those standards, it's easy enough for advocates for military spending to say, this is, this is tolerable. What, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that, is that we're spending well beyond our means, that, that we are financing these uh, wars and maintaining the ability to fight more of them uh, on debt. Um, and ultimately, um, some hard choices will have to be made, but those hard choices have so far been postponed or evaded. And I think that the Congress uh, and the executive here are, are, you know, sort of joined together in not not presenting to the American people the hard trade-offs between these things, which is why, by the way, many people are familiar with Dwight Eisenhower's farewell address, military industrial complex speech in January of 1961. I also include in the book um, a long speech that he gave called The Chance for Peace, which was um, one of the first speeches he gave as president in, in April of 1953. And in that speech, Eisenhower spells out the trade-offs. He spells out the opportunity costs. He explains to the American people, if you buy a ship, you can't buy a hospital. If you buy a plane, you can't buy this much wheat. We, that is precisely the discussion that we do not ever have in this country. And it's because uh, when, when Eisenhower was saying this, people actually cared about debt and deficits. They allowed, you know, there were some of them, and we obviously went into deep into debt to prosecute and win the World, World War II. Uh, and yet people like him cared deeply about fiscal balance. Uh, the number of people, it appears, who actually care about such things is small and shrinking. Thankfully, um, some, many of them are uh, avid listeners to Cato Audio and generous sponsors to the Cato Institute, for which I'm, I'm immensely grateful. But I'll have to call him out. I can't help it. Mick Mulvaney, uh, who's sort of the, act, you know, the acting um, chief of staff now in the White House and a former congressman, but also former head of the Office of Management and Budget, was asked prior to the president's State of the Union address, will there be anything in here about a debt and deficits? And he effectively said, and eh, no one cares about that anymore. And it was just, it was a shocking statement from a person who once at least did genuinely care about such things. Uh, and I think it, it, it tells us just how far we've come. I want to close with this because I, I feel like this might be a hard case and maybe it's, maybe it's not a hard case at all. Venezuela. Hmm. Uh, the United States has had a wide and varied relationship with Venezuela over the past 30 plus years. Yes. Uh, right, they're not very far away. Yes. Um, so that the, the potential for for something going bad in Venezuela could affect the U.S. in a in a significant way. Yes. There are people there who are trying to assert liberties that they once possessed in Venezuela. They are essentially, in in a sense, freedom fighters. Yes. And they are taking on a government that has uh, over the last ten. 10 years or so has really just ratcheted up the control and uh, has left the vast majority of Venezuelans dramatically poorer and less free. Correct. What is the U.S. role in a country like Venezuela? Is it even appropriate for the U.S. to say, we recognize this person as having won the election and is the new rightful leader of this country? Is it in a in a sort of a back channel way trying to support the people who are fighting against the government right or is it just to stand back and just let things play out i, I think there is a a critical distinction between the united states recognizing a person who can point to the venezuelan constitution and and the laws within the venezuela and sort of make a case for why they are the legitimate uh, why he or she is the legitimate leader of, of venezuela in this case juan guaido uh, versus nicolas maduro uh, the, the problem with the venezuela case right now is that we are also aware of multiple instances in which the united states government um, 
actively uh, worked with elements within Venezuela, including at least three different occasions where um, U.S. government officials met with um, military officers in the Venezuelan military who were contemplating a coup against the Maduro government, um, other incidents in which the United States met with opposition figures. And that to me seems like a kind of meddling in the affairs of a sovereign state that if it were done to us, we would object. And I think it's worth just sort of taking a step back, leaving aside the history of US involvement in the domestic politics of many states in our hemisphere over the last uh, three quarters of a century or so, a little bit longer than that actually. What upsets me most about the way the Venezuela story is playing out is the suggestion that uh, liberals in Venezuela, classical liberals, even libertarians, if you will, who desire a state that is respectful of rights and property and, um, and human rights and free speech and all of those things, that they can't possibly prevail without the covering fire of American armaments or the threat of the use of force. And as a libertarian, I find those, I find that suggestion, frankly, repugnant. These ideas that we believe in are good and they work and they don't require the United States military to be promoting them by force. They don't require the United States government to be picking and choosing the winners of, of uh, you know, who will prevail in a, in, a, in a foreign election. So I do talk about this in the closing passage. The closing passages of the book talk about the importance of seeing human liberty as springing from many sources, not just from the United States of America. Uh, and I think that's the kind of world that, that I want to live in. All right. The book published by Libertarianism.org at the Cato Institute is Peace, War, and Liberty, Understanding U.S. Foreign Policy. The author is the Cato Institute's Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies, Chris Preble. Uh, the book will be available very soon, uh, in the next month, in fact, uh, and you can get your copy at Cato.org. The end of the Cold War brought with it enormous optimism about the United States standing as the world's only superpower. So what's happened since then, and why? In The Hell of Good Intentions, Stephen Walt describes many of the problems inherent in U.S. primacy. He spoke at the Cato Institute in October. Uh, what I want to do is focus on two big questions. Uh, and the first one is, how did we get here? Uh, there was, as Chris said, tremendous optimism when the Cold War ended, but that's not the world we're living in today. So the question is, what went wrong? And I'm going to argue that the United States deserves a lot of the blame. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, and then the second question is, how could we do better? And here I will lay out the case for a different grand strategy, sketch what needs to happen uh, in order to bring that about, and along the way I'll explain why I don't think Donald Trump is the guy who is going to deliver it uh, to us. So let me start with the bad news and flesh out a few of the things that uh, Chris said. Remember that unipolar moment? The United States was dominant. The wind was at our back. Our problems were really confined to a few pesky dictators who hadn't gotten the memo. Think back to the early 1990s. The United States is on good terms with all the major powers in the world, including Russia and China. Democracy is spreading worldwide. Iraq has been disarmed. Iran has no nuclear enrichment capacity. We thought we had capped North Korea's nuclear program as well. Globalization is spreading rapidly under American auspices with the formation of the WTO. NATO and the EU are beginning to expand. The Oslo Accords give us all hope for a lasting peace in the Middle East. The American military seems unstoppable and the US economy is doing pretty well too. Now the world of 2018. China's power and ambitions have grown dramatically. Russia has seized Crimea, interfered in several other countries, relations with Moscow worse than at any time since the Cold War, and as Chris said, Moscow and Beijing increasingly aligned. Democracy is in retreat. According to Freedom House, 2017 marked the 12th consecutive year of a decline in global freedom, 
And last year, the Economist Intelligence Unit's annual democracy index downgraded the United States of America from a full to a flawed democracy. Since 1993, North Korea, India, and Pakistan have all tested nuclear weapons, and Iran is now essentially a latent nuclear power with the capacity to get a nuclear weapon if it ever wants to. Repeated efforts to broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace were all humiliating diplomatic failures, and the two-state solution that was advocated by Clinton, Bush, and Obama now farther away than ever. Of course, the United States was also attacked on September 11th, and we responded by invading first Afghanistan, then Iraq. Both wars turned into costly disasters that weakened our overall strategic position, and the American military, though still impressive, no longer seems unstoppable. And finally, today much of the Middle East is in flames, and American interference helped create failed states in Libya and Yemen and Syria. So back in 2016, when Donald Trump called US foreign policy a complete and total disaster and accused the foreign policy establishment of being out of touch and unaccountable, many Americans nodded their heads in agreement. The taproot of all of those failures, I argue in this book, was the US commitment to a grand strategy of liberal hegemony. This strategy sees the United States as the indispensable nation that is uniquely qualified to spread democracy, markets, and other liberal institutions, and to bring other states into a web of alliances and institutions led by Washington. When you think about it, it's a highly revisionist grand strategy. Instead of defending our own territory, upholding the balance of power in a few key regions, Liberal hegemony seeks to change the status quo in many parts of the world, peacefully if possible, but if necessary, by force, and remake the world in America's image. The problem is, however much we may like those liberal values, and I certainly do, liberal hegemony is fundamentally flawed as a strategy. For starters, it inflates our defense requirements. By 2016, the United States was formally committed to defending more countries around the world than at any time in our nation's history, including some that were weak, vulnerable, hard to protect. It also allows our allies to free ride, or in some cases, act recklessly, because they know Uncle Sam will bail them out if they get into trouble. Second, by definition, trying to spread liberal values inevitably threatens non-democratic regimes who found lots of ways to thwart our aims. It also assumes that we know how to create democracies in the wake of regime change, but toppling foreign governments led to failed states and costly occupations instead. And when you think about it, looking back, the belief that we could do this kind of radical social engineering in places like Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Somalia, or Yemen was positively delusional. You know, what were we thinking? Globalization did produce real gains for many, especially in Asia and the 1% here at home, but not for the lower and middle classes throughout the West. Bottom line, liberal hegemony has been a failure. So why did we do this? Why did we embark on this foolish crusade and persist in the face of repeated disappointments? Well, one reason is primacy itself, the extraordinary power, wealth, security that the United States enjoyed. But when you think about it, that's still a puzzle. Why did we do this given that we were already in remarkably good shape and this ambitious effort wasn't really necessary? Well, another reason is our own values. We see them as of universal validity that really ought to be brought to the rest of the world, makes it hard to resist the temptation and to believe others will welcome it if we bring them to them. But the most immediate reason, I argue, was the powerful consensus within Washington and within the foreign policy elite, a consensus not shared by the general public. By the elite, I mean Americans who are actively engaged on a more or less constant basis with issues of international affairs. In other words, I'm talking about the blob. So it's formal institutions of government, the president, NSC, departments of state, defense, intelligence agencies, etc. It's membership organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations. It's think tanks like Brookings, AEI, Carnegie, and many, many others. It's special interest groups and lobbies who weigh in on any number of issues from arms control to human rights to regional politics to whatever, dozens of them too. 
those parts of the media that deal with foreign affairs, and of course, academics like me who work on foreign affairs and occasionally get involved in public debate or in sometimes serve in key government positions and train students who will join the blob eventually too. Let me just say a couple of things about this elite when you think about it. First, there are no formal membership requirements. There's no required degree, no bar exam, no medical board certification. You need a real estate license to sell real estate, but not to practice foreign policy. All it takes is convincing some people in the elite that you're smart, energetic, have thing, important things to say, useful and loyal. That's all the only real membership requirement. Second, it's a community, especially as you rise up within it, where everybody knows everybody else, right? Leading members know each other well, participate in lots of overlapping organizations, will work at lots of different jobs in the course of a career. Because it's a community with no membership requirements, your success depends on your networks and on maintaining a positive reputation. And that means staying within the acceptable consensus. So despite all of the partisan warfare you see in Washington, there is in fact remarkable agreement within the foreign policy elite about what America's role in the world should be. What's that consensus? You know it as well as I do. NATO is essential. Israel is beyond criticism. Iran, Russia, and China are bad. Nuclear proliferation is bad, but America's nuclear arsenal is essential. Free trade is mostly good. Terrorism is the absolute worst. Democracy and human rights are important, except when close allies fall short. And most important of all, the United States must exercise leadership on every issue and in every part of the globe, has the right to overthrow or pressure or sanction any governments we happen to dislike if we think we can get away with it. Questioning any of those ideas is not a smart career move in Washington. And to show just how pervasive this is, uh, in the book I talk about three task forces that have occurred over the last 15 years. The Princeton Project on National Security in 2006, the Project for a United and Strong America in 2013, and the CNAS report Extending American Power in 2016. Each of these is bipartisan, each is produced by bold-faced names in the foreign policy elite. The circumstances in which they're written are very different one of them before Iraq goes south and before the financial crisis, the other two afterwards, and yet they are virtually interchangeable. The recommendations, the policy prescriptions, are, and the justifications for them uh, are essentially identical. Now, there are obviously some disagreements within the blob over specific foreign policy issues, the Iran deal, intervention in Syria, things like that. But overall, voices supporting liberal hegemony far outweigh the number of voices saying that the United States might be overcommitted and should act, therefore, with greater restraint. There are a few places, like the building that we're in today, but not very many. So why does the foreign policy elite like liberal hegemony so much? Well, partly because many of these people genuinely believe in these ideals, think they're good for America and would be good for the world. But of course, trying to remake the world in America's image also increases their power and status, their claim to budget shares, their sense of self-worth and achievement, and it gives them plenty to do. So in other words, liberal hegemony is something of a full employment policy for the foreign policy elite. The American people, however, have a somewhat different view. On the one hand, they reject isolationism overwhelmingly. Surveys show this repeatedly. But they also want a much more restrained foreign policy. In 2013, for example, 80% of Americans surveyed agreed with the statement, quote, we should not think so much in international terms, but concentrate on our own national problems and building up strength here at home, 80%. Consider also that the last four US presidents ran for office promising to do less in foreign policy. Bill Clinton, it's the economy, stupid. George W. Bush, a humble foreign policy and no nation building. Barack Obama, ending foolish wars, rebuilding ties with the rest of the world, and don't do stupid stuff. Donald Trump, our foreign policy is a complete and total disaster. We're getting out of the nation building business.
A Supreme Court case in the most recent term reshaped how you pay taxes on purchases you make online. It's South Dakota v. Wayfair. At the Cato Institute's Constitution Day event, Joseph Bishop Henchman, executive vice president at the Tax Foundation, described the legal reasoning that drove the ruling and what it means for your future purchases. Currently, sometimes you pay sales tax when you buy things online, and sometimes you don't, and you're about to learn why. Uh, the Commerce Clause, you forgot to boo and hiss. The Commerce Clause yeah, is a dirty word among us libertarians. But the Commerce Clause I'm speaking about today is not the evil, bad Interstate Commerce Clause, the one that's allowed the federal government to ban even intrastate non-commerce, but the good Interstate Commerce Clause, the one that bans state laws that discriminate against or unduly burden interstate commerce. It first emerged in the case of Gibbons v. Ogden in 1824 when who else? New Jersey and New York's were squabbling about who, who got to monopolize ferry traffic between them. Chief Justice Marshall ruled, neither of you. The Constitution's Commerce Clause gives, gives, over the, the, gives the power over interstate commerce to the federal government, even when the feds have done nothing. So states cannot harm it, cannot harm it, and free trade between New Jersey and New York proceeded. I should note that the dormant Commerce Clause is not universally accepted in conservative libertarian legal circles. While Justices Alito and, while Justice Alito and former Justice Kennedy are champions of the Commerce Clause, Justices Scalia and Thomas were and are not. Their view is the Commerce Clause says Congress shall, and if Congress has not shalled, then the states can do whatever they want. They correctly observe that dormant Commerce Clause analysis looks more like policy analysis than judicial analysis. So Scalia and Thomas were often automatic votes to sustain even the craziest state tax laws, along with Justin Ginsburg, who just supports crazy state tax laws. Uh, and I have to tell you, it's not fun going into every Supreme Court case three votes down. Uh, and it does look like Justice Gorsuch has taken up Justice Scalia's view on this. So anyways, for a long time after Gibbons v. Ogden, the rule was states cannot tax interstate commerce at all. And that worked well enough when interstate commerce was properly defined and was a tiny portion of our economy. But it came, became increasingly unworkable as we entered the 20th century and increasing numbers of jobs, companies, transactions, and people crossed state lines frequently and routinely. In the 1930s and the 1940s, the Supreme Court greatly expanded the definition of interstate commerce to include nearly everything. The flip side of that is that a total prohibition of state, of state taxation of interstate commerce consistently applied under that definition would deprive states, counties, and cities of all tax revenue, except for maybe property taxes. Now, maybe that's not so bad, but it's not the path that we took. Instead, the Supreme Court had to modify its total prohibition to allow states to tax interstate commerce in certain circumstances. If you want to skip ahead to the end and get the technical answer, it's on page 299 and footnote 116 of the book that was handed out today. But the gist of it is that a tax has to be non-surprising, non-burdensome, and non-discriminatory. Let me take those in reverse order. First, non-discriminatory. That means a tax on an activity out of state should be no more than the tax on identical activity in state. States love trying to get around this, taxing outsiders to benefit voters, and the Supreme Court deserves full credit for slapping this down almost every time. I actually have a pillow in my office that says this rule. It's really important. It's my bread and butter stopping discriminatory state taxation. Taxfoundation.org slash donate. Uh, <laughs> Non-burdensome means the state enactment is so costly, so complex, and so damaging that it's really just a tariff. Everybody, anybody heard of tariffs lately? Right. With the purpose of banning imports to benefit in-state producers. That's a no-no, and you'll get even Justice Thomas angry at you. Uh, the hard part for lawyers like me is finding that line between normal, everyday, ordinary tax compliance and burdensome, tariff-like, unconstitutional tax compliance. It's a fun job. Non-surprising, and that's where this year's decision comes in, means whoever you're taxing has to have some kind of connection, some kind of nexus with the state. To me, that sounds an awful like, lot like due process, that class I had first year, where when can you be sued in a jurisdiction? Do you have enough minimum context? Are you purposefully availing? That stuff. It sounded like due process to just about every constitutional scholar who's taken a look at the question. But in 1967, the Supreme Court looked at it and said, that's not a 
due process question. That's a commerce clause question. Case involved a mail order company uh, uh, that sent catalogs and sold stuff through the mail to people in Illinois. Uh, the case was called Bellis Hess. Uh, and they said, no, nexus is a separate test under the commerce clause and a separate standard. The nexus has to be sufficient or substantial. Well, what does that mean? Uh, this they defined as physical presence of the seller inside the state. Now that itself is a difficult term because corporations are never actually physically present. They are metaphysical entities, uh, truly only present in the form of a piece of paper in a filing cabinet, usually in Delaware. Uh, their employees and their building and their correspondence and their packages and their advertisements, these things can be physically present, but they're representations or proxies for corporations, not corporations themselves. Now, I once thought physical presence could be a restraint on state governments. A decade of experience dealing with that standard has taught me that it is not. Independent contractors who are non-employees that do certain functions for you who are physically present in a state count as physical presence, courts have ruled. New Jersey, again, that state, seized a truck as it entered the state and demanded back taxes before it allowed it uh, to go on and deliver its goods. Uh, because even fleeting pres physical presence counts as physical presence. Washington state demanded seven years of taxes from a CEO who flew to SeaTac to visit family because unrelated to business physical presence counts as physical presence. And Massachusetts now says that any website that places cookies on the computers of Massachusetts residents is subject to state taxes because physical presence of electronic ones and zeros counts as physical presence. That physical presence rule was reaffirmed in 1992 in the Quill decision, which also dealt with mail order catalogs. There was some misgiving by justices who didn't think it sounded right, but didn't want to upset expectations and reliance interests. And they reassured themselves that Congress could always pass legislation if they disagreed with it. Side note, that's possible with the Dormant Commerce Clause because it is the only provision of the Constitution where Congress can overrule the court with mere legislation because the text of the Constitution says Congress shall. Justice Scalia really hated that uh, analysis of it. Anyways, in 1992, the court basically asked Congress, hey, can you define a law to define nexus for interstate tax purposes? Another interactive moment. Raise your hand if you think Congress passed such a law. <laughs> it was a quarter century ago, but you are correct, they did not. And it's too bad because most of the work was already done for them. In the 1960s, a congressman named Edwin Willis, Edwin Willis chaired a commission the Willis Commission, that gazed into the future and recommended federal thresholds to limit state tax power. How many days can you be in a state before they start demanding state income tax from you? What kind of business can, can you conduct in a state before you start owing business taxes? What's the rightful share of a multi-state company's profits that one state can subject to its tax? All of these questions that consume my every waking moment today were actually thought about and answered past, back then. Congress just never passed the bill. Uh, Unfortunately, that report was put on a shelf, and the only place you can find it now is on the Tax Foundation's website. So instead, what happened was 25 years of nothing. Nothing legislatively or judicially. Now, the internet happened, uh, and now essentially everyone who sells anything can sell it anywhere in the world. States kept passing laws trying to tax this activity, and courts kept upholding them, except for the one area of sales taxes on businesses not physically present in the state. And that brings us to Wayfair. Has anyone ever bought anything from Wayfair? Couple people, I have. Uh, Wayfair is a website where you can buy furniture directly from manufacturers without showrooms or salespeople or markups, and they proverbially pass the savings on to you. They made $4.7 billion last year, selling into every state, advertising in every state, directing their commerce, and purposely availing themselves of the market in every state. They meet the due process minimum context threshold under current doctrine. And by the way, if you, think, if you want an argument that that doctrine is wrong, uh, read Cato's very good brief in this case. Uh, but the direct issue in Wayfair was whether the Commerce Clause restrained South Dakota from collecting sales tax from Wayfair on Wayfair sales to South Dakota residents. Now, it's not discriminatory. The exact same tax is collected by South Dakota businesses on their sales to South Dakota residents. It's not burdensome. South Dakota actually has a pretty easy to comply with sales tax system. Just a couple of rates, a pretty broad base that's uniform across the state, and the state even provides lookup and, and definition software and there's centralized collections. You only have to deal with one entity in the state. South Dakota is also one of 22 states that's a member of a multi-state compact, the Streamlined Sales Tax Governing Board, to make interstate sales tax collection a one-stop shop. So the Wayfair case came down to, is it not surprising 
does the Wayfair does Wayfair have a minimum level of activity to to have to collect South Dakota sales tax? Is there sufficient nexus? There is. The Supreme Court ruled. What's the role of judges in enforcing the Constitution? For one, according to Cato's Clark Neely, it's to rigorously engage with the text and meaning of the Constitution when rights are challenged. He spoke at Cato University in March of last year. This talk is about the role of judges in enforcing constitutionally limited government. Let me start with a question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how conscientious do you think the average legislator is about ensuring that whatever bill they're contemplating complies with the Constitution? In fact, it's a trick question because it's not one uh, one to 10, it's actually zero. It's zero, they they care, they literally have this much concern about whether what they're doing is constitutional, the number is in fact zero. So you either have judicially enforced constitutionally limited government or you don't have constitutionally limited government. That's, I'm I'm front loading the pitch, That's that's what it is. These people who talk about, oh, you know, uh, all three branches have an equal responsibility to, uh, you know, make sure that they're in compliance with the Constitution. Yeah, that's theoretically true. And um, I was mentioning to my my table mates at lunch that I I was going to have a story with a goat in it, so uh, I'm going to jump right into that one. Um, When I was a kid... uh, Uh, Part of my childhood was spent outside of Boston, Massachusetts in a kind of a, we were at the edge of a suburban town and so we had a couple acres of land and there was this old crumbling barn on the land and my mom was kind of a reformed hippie so we had, you know, we grew our own vegetables and we we had chickens and geese and then one summer, but only one summer, we had goats. We had two of them and um, uh, we learned two things that summer. One thing is uh, that it's, uh, unless you're really good at it, it's it's too uh, much of a pain to milk a goat no point in doing it. They don't like it, you don't like it, and you don't get much for your trouble. The other thing we learned was that if you leave the door to the room where the goat food is and a goat gets into that room, the goat will continue to eat until one of two things happens, that the, you run out of food or the goat is dead. They will eat themselves to death. And the same thing is true of power. Any scrap of power that you leave lying around will be exercised by a legislator. So don't think for a minute that you can say, well, you know, you guys just take help yourself to as much as you think the Constitution permits and everything will be fine. It won't be fine. It won't be fine at all. Uh, and so another metaphor, another way of describing it is to say that this here in my hand, the U.S. Constitution, is a supremely beautiful and well-designed engine of liberty. And it really is. I think this is maybe the greatest secular document ever written uh, and and there's, it's no accident that we have the, the longest lasting constitution of any country in the world, but it is only an engine. Can you take this constitution, how does this work? And if you, if you, uh, you, know, you found yourself at a state capitol building uh, and you felt that maybe the legislature was, uh, was contemplating a bill that was not in compliance with the constitution, do you just Go in there with the Constitution, you know, kind of like a crucifix and go up to legislators, you know, oh, the power of James Madison compels you. The power of James Madison compels you. No, of course it doesn't work that way. There is only one way that the power that is contained in this engine of liberty actually translates into real world results. And that is, to continue the metaphor, if this is the engine, an engine with power is meaningless without a transmission without a transmission that can take that power and send it to where it can do some good, to the drivetrain. Well, the same thing here. This is the engine. The judiciary is the transmission. Without a properly functioning judiciary, this document is effectively meaningless. Because again, the people who wield power in this country, legislative power and executive power, are supposed to care about the constitutionality of their actions, but they don't. In large measure, it's not that they don't care, they don't really, there's just no point in them caring um, because they're driven by other dynamics, they don't spend a lot of time studying the document, and their attitude is, we'll pass whatever we think is good policy and we'll let the courts sort it out in terms of whether it's constitutional. We can argue about whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, I'm just telling you that that's the way it is. So if you don't have a judiciary that is fully committed to enforcing constitutionally limited government, you won't have constitutionally limited government. Um, 
And that matters a lot because unfortunately our judiciary has basically driven itself into a ditch uh, with something that I refer to variously as reflexive restraint or knee-jerk deference. Um, if you've ever seen a, uh, a Supreme Court confirmation hearing, you, you, you hear the word humility about 1,500 times. Um, that's just code words basically for uh, deference. I will defer to you. I, if you confirm me as a Supreme Court justice, I will defer to you, the legislature. That's what the Senate wants to hear, and that's pretty much your ticket to a confirmation, is convincing the Senate that of all the people who could have been picked for that job, you are the limpest noodle and the wettest, flattest doormat. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what basically our confirmation hearings have become is an opportunity for the Senate to extract from the nominee a pledge to be a judicial doormat. Uh, and I think that's usually problematic because it is basically drained of this document of much of its significance because we don't have a properly functioning transmission. We've still got a great engine, uh, but the transmission is uh, just say that we need to get the car to the shop. Any effort to close a military base would be met with substantial resistance, which is why Congress created BRAC, Base Realignment and Closure. Does it work? At a Cato Capitol Hill briefing, Democratic Representative Adam Smith of Washington detailed some of the internal politics of BRAC. The military is significantly hamstrung right now in their ability to move assets. Basically, members of Congress seem to think that anything moved out of their district is the most egregious act ever committed, and they will fight to the death to prevent it. I remember we had in our bill last year, there were two, and I, uh, I think it was a C-27, C-29, I forget, sorry, um, not one of the normal big planes that I'm used to, but they were trying to move two of them out of this place in Colorado to someplace else. And we actually had an organized effort from the Colorado delegation to stop them from doing that. That makes it very difficult for the military to function. I met with the commander of the, the tra uh, transportation command, and this was his number one biggest point. Let me move my assets freely so I can get them where they need to be. Because right now, they are restricted in all manner of different ways in terms of what they can do with, with not just their facilities, um, but with equipment. You know, try moving a few helicopters out of a out of an Air National Guard unit somewhere in the country. Um, there will be hell to pay. And that really restricts the efficiency of the military. Yeah, you know, just two stories that I'll close with, but really what we're talking about here with BRAC and everything else is trying to spend money as wisely and effectively as possible. And the notion that whatever our current force structure is and where it is placed, is the one and only perfect force structure and cannot be changed is, is obviously ridiculous. Um, things change, things evolve, the size of the force changes. You want to have that flexibility, and right now we don't. BRAC would be the ultimate flexibility, but even if we can't get BRAC, I think there are things that we need to do to free up the flexibility. Uh, I remember talking with Senator McCain about this. He, it's probably uh, seven, eight years ago now. He said he was, you know, going up to campaign for a Senate candidate, um, as he put it, another losing Senate candidate. Um, so maybe it was 2008. I don't remember. But anyway, <laughs> um, he's up in North Dakota and he gets there. And I've done these things before where you go in as a surrogate for somebody else and they tell you what the issues are that they want you to touch on. He gets off the phone and said, look, there, the big deal is there's these five C-130s at this base that they want to move to California. We've come out strong against it. We need you to, you know, really, you know, you know, talk about how you're going to, you know, fight to keep these here. And I, I love John McCain. I really do. It is like, are you kidding me? <laughs> there's no way on earth I'm going to do that. You know, if the Air Force wants to move five C-130s, let them. And, you know, what's this got to do with the overall health of the economy? You know, he had a very, very aggressive approach, which, which I agree with. And then in my own situation, when I represented Joint Base Lewis-McChord, one of the things they do out there at uh, Fort Lewis was they take about 3,000 ROTC officers and they do six weeks of training uh, in the summer, uh, July and August. And I don't know, 10 years ago or so, the Army decided that they wanted to move that program to Kentucky. 
Now, aside from feeling bad for those young college students who would have to spend August in Kentucky instead of in the Pacific Northwest, where it's a much cooler climate, um, I was like, yeah, I don't know why they're doing it, but whatever. And, but, but the district went bananas. This must be stopped. And I'm like, most college students like, okay, I, I, just, I have a question. Why? <laughs> um, I mean, I get that, you know, it's 3,000 people. They generate some amount for our economy over the course of the six weeks that they're here. But Lewis McCord is a rather large military base. We're, we're doing okay. And if the Army has a reason why they think it's going to enable them to more efficiently run their operation, you know, the more hoops we force them to jump through, the more difficult it is for them to do their job. U.S. policymakers and opinion leaders often let themselves and U.S. foreign policy be manipulated into supporting causes that have stained America's honor or resulted in tragic consequences. In his new book, Gullible Superpower, Cato Institute foreign policy expert Ted Galen Carpenter takes a penetrating look at some of the most prominent cases and their resonating impact, including the Nicaraguan Contras and the Iraqi National Congress, to U.S. military entanglements in Kosovo, Iraq, Libya, and Syria. Each chapter provides a thorough analysis of U.S. missteps, a wealth of historical details, and the lessons that need to be learned. Gullible Superpower is available now, online, wherever books are sold. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.